Hello and welcome back to the American Studies Podcast. I'm Dr. Darren R. Reed, the Frontier Historian, and I'm here wishing you a Happy New Year. I hope that 2013 will be another wonderful year for you all. In this latest episode of the podcast, I'm going to introduce you to the murky world of racism in early superhero comic books by looking at the case of Captain America's racist sidekick, Whitewash Jones. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, feel free to send me your comments or questions. And remember to follow me on Twitter at that historian, or visit my website at www.darrenreadhistory.co.uk. Enjoy the episode. For many more reasons than I will have time to discuss here, World War II was a time of significant patriotism among the Allies. In the UK, the frontline experience forced upon the country by the Battle of Britain helped to create a broad sense of common experience, common purpose that continues to be fondly remembered and even romanticised to this day. In America, however, the added security offered by the Atlantic Ocean served to insulate the United States from the worst excesses of war on the home front. Rather than dealing with the often everyday danger posed by falling bombs or the threat of invasion, the experience of war in the American home front was fundamentally different to that which was necessarily experienced throughout much of Europe. Still, the war was fought after its own fashion on American shores, and one of the most easily recognisable aspects of that experience was the deluge of wartime propaganda which flooded nearly every demographic in the US. For adults, broadsheets and posters tied the growing global conflict to the pursuit of liberty which defined historic memories of the Revolutionary War. Patriotic images of the Continental Army were linked directly to America's renewed place on the world stage, whilst for children, characters ranging from Mickey Mouse to Superman each made their own impassioned pleas to justify and support the war. Perhaps the most overt of these wartime curiosities was 1940's Captain America, whose red, white and blue uniform, not to mention his similarly adorned shield, denoted an unambiguous and unapologetic support for the American cause. In many ways, Captain America was one of the most purely American icons to be produced during this period, but his early years were marked by a far less positive aspect of the contemporary American experience. Race and racism cast a dark shadow over his early adventures. The form this racism took appeared with the introduction of a sidekick team, initially known as the Sentinels of Liberty, though quickly renamed the Young Allies. Born of Captain America's original creative team of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, the Young Allies saw a group of pre-adolescent boys team up in order to fight America's soon-to-be wartime enemies. First appearing in the pages of Captain America's own title before being spun off into their own series, the Young Allies saw Captain America's sidekick, Bucky Barnes, team up with the Human Torture sidekick, Toro, and several other similarly patriotic friends, Knuckles, Jeff, Tubby, and Whitewash Jones. Over the course of their adventures, the Young Allies would fight supervillains, Nazis, Japanese spies, and generally support the Allies' cause against the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan, sometimes independently, and sometimes alongside Captain America himself. As a comic aimed at a fairly young readership, the Young Allies acted in a similar manner to sidekicks across the superhero genre, 
providing their readership with a direct proxy onto which they could project their own identities. Just as Robin provided young readers of Batman's comics with a character with whom they could identify and aspire to be, the young allies provided in Bucky, Barnes and Toro a pair of characters with whom readers could easily associate themselves. In the world of superhero sidekicks, however, aspiration was not everything, and the sidekick, where he or she didn't serve as a proxy for young readers, often served as a title's comic relief, and it is into this trap that several members of the Young Allies fell, including Tubby, whose characterisation is probably best summarised by his name, and Whitewashed Jones, the unfortunate and unfair proxy for an entire race. Before looking in detail at Jones's character, it should be noted that however he was presented and characterised, he provided the Young Allies, and thus America's fictional effort in the war, with a rare interracial angle. It should be remembered that the American military was segregated throughout this period, and though racist characteristics were some of Jones's core components, his presence as a member of the Young Allies was an important statement for the time, even if the execution of this idea served to undermine everything, I do mean everything, that it might have otherwise accomplished. Even taking into account the interracial dimension Jones added to this team, his depiction was so racially loaded and skewed that it throws up some major question marks regarding the racial views of his co-creator, the legendary Marvel artist, Jack Kirby. For anyone with a passing interest in the history of comic books, Kirby's name will likely be familiar. He was, after all, responsible for co-creating the Fantastic Four, the Incredible Hulk, and the X-Men, one of the most self-consciously inclusive comics of its time. But in spite of these later creative successes, Kirby failed to rise above the racial politics and ideas which helped to define America in the 1940s, and his whitewashed Jones character reflects his inability or unwillingness to reflect anything even close to a true African-American character within the context of the Young Allies. Jones is, you see, one of those characters who communicates a vast amount of his sense of self, purpose and identity through his physical appearance alone. Sure, there is much to be said about how he was written, but even taken in isolation, with no broader context or dialogue, Jones's highly stylized, distorted image communicates vast amounts of information to his intended audience. Among Jones's most significant physical characteristics were a massive set of lips, exaggerated, prominent ears, tiny eyes, and an elongated face, all characteristics which combined to create an almost unhuman portrayal of an African-American male, which was sadly common for the time, which still rears its head even today. Based upon his physical appearance alone, Jones was a celebration of racist iconography. In terms of the writing which defined his character, things only get worse. Aside from taking on the mantle of comic relief, something which, in and of itself, was not necessarily a negative, Jones is frequently depicted as bumbling, foolish, or outright stupid, all characteristics which were routinely attributed to African Americans in the pre-civil rights era. There were, of course, numerous positive role models upon whom the writers of this character could have drawn, should they have chosen to do so, or had any significant knowledge of the historic black experience. 
Booker T. Washington would have been an interesting, though perhaps controversial choice, whilst W.E.B. Du Bois might have provided another interesting template upon which such a character might have drawn inspiration. Instead, the writers of the Young Allies resorted to the lowest common racial denominator when it came to its characterisation, relying not upon any real-life source, but upon racist white ideas about the nature of African Americans. Consider some of his dialogue from Young Allies No. 1. Here, Jones is introduced by Bucky as being able to make a harmonica talk, before himself adding, Yeah man, I also good on de watermelon. Later, in that same issue, Jones, who is sometimes depicted as a capable member of the team, is rendered into a state of complete cowardice in a graveyard. Spooked by the gravestones around him, he chides his own body, telling it to get moving feet. I ain't going in there. Then, whilst trying to make his escape, he tells his teammates suddenly, I remembered, I, I gotta go run an errand for my mammy. Even when Jones saves his friends in the first issue, it is depicted as an act of accidental providence, the result not of any intelligence upon Jones's part, but of sheer luck that his ill-thought-out plan happened to result in the escape of his companions from the enemy spies who had waylaid them. In case you're wondering about my pronunciation of Jones's quotes, I'm trying to reproduce the racist phonetics of the original comic's dialogue. In the case of the word remembered, it is spelt in Young Allies issue 1 with an H and has no E before the last E, whilst I, as in I am a person, is spelt A-H. Such deliberate misspelling reflects the top-to-bottom racism which defined not only this character, but how African Americans were typically depicted in much of the media. And in that way, we are reminded that Whitewash Jones was not exceptional in his racist depiction. Rather, characters like him were uncomfortably typical in the media of this time, though Jones's appearance and uncompromisingly conformist characterisation does raise some questions regarding those individuals responsible for his creation and development, particularly as those same individuals would come to play some of the biggest roles in the development of the superhero genre throughout the 20th century. Although not one of the Young Allies' original creators, the first issue of the group's own comic was written by Stan Lee, the comic scribe who would, along with Young Allies artist Jack Kirby, go on to co-create the Fantastic Four and the X-Men. That Lee and Kirby were involved in this project is certainly cause for a raised eyebrow, particularly when the enduringly positive reputations of these men is considered. On the one hand, both Kirby and Lee are remembered as two of the most important creators in the story of 20th century comic book culture. On the other, they were, to varying degrees, responsible for the character of Whitewash Jones, an unapologetically racist depiction of an African-American comic book hero. Of course, one should be very careful not to draw too many conclusions from Lee and Kirby's involvement in this character. For Lee's part, he was a young man, barely 18 years old, and handed the writing assignment for an already predefined character. How far could he have really changed Jones's existing characterization? Was Lee, at 18, a capable enough writer to take on such a challenge in a climate where characters like Jones were common enough and accepted as a part of mainstream American culture? Or 
Did the young Lee recognise the inherent unfairness and negativity bound up in an archetype to which he had likely been exposed repeatedly throughout his childhood? Similar questions could be asked of Kirby, though the soft edge applied to Lee would have to be removed. Unlike his younger collaborator, Kirby co-created Jones, and as the artist behind his look, was responsible for his exaggerated appearance and Unlikely, Kirby was not handed an entirely predefined character. Nor was he incapable of depicting fine physical specimens, as his artwork for Captain America repeatedly demonstrates. Because of this, Kirby's artistic and creative choices regarding Jones should be held up and examined. In one respect, Kirby did help to create an interracial comic book team, but the nature of the racial dynamic he helped to craft is far from easily digested by modern-day audiences. Indeed, problematic hardly seems like an adequate word to describe this early chapter in the history of Lee, Kirby and Marvel. In most histories which examine Marvel's past, the story of the young allies is almost entirely ignored whilst Whitewash Jones is mentioned with even less frequency and hardly any analysis at all. In Tales to Astonish, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee and the American comic book revolution, author Romnin Rowe barely seems to acknowledge the racial issues at the heart of the young allies, even as he recasts them as a noble attempt at racial integration. In one of the very few mentions of the young allies in this book, Rowe describes them as and I quote, a multiracial group of patriotic kids. This is as close as Roe comes to acknowledging the problematic existence of Jones, and worryingly seems to imply to those readers who might be ignorant of the facts that this comic was an early attempt at liberal, multicultural integration. In its own right, that is an argument which could be made. However, in doing so, one must absolutely acknowledge the racist ideas, which were also at work. To do otherwise would serve only to give an utterly false impression regarding the genesis and execution of the Allies. But even worse than Rowe's misguided summary of the young Allies is their almost complete absence from most other relevant histories and biographies. In Stan Lee, The Rise and Fall of the American Comic Book, the young Allies are barely mentioned, whilst in Lee's own autobiography, Excelsior, Neither they nor Jones are mentioned at all. Even in 2012, in Sean Howe's new work, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, the young allies are given only the briefest of mentions, with no analysis whatsoever given to the group, their stories, or their racism. So much for the untold story. Thus we find ourselves in something of a quandary, both Whitewash Jones and the Young Allies have been largely ignored by observers, commentators and academics, and yet they are tied to two of the most important creative individuals associated with comic books in the 20th century. Individuals whose creations are currently dominating cinema box offices around the world. In order to really begin to understand Whitewash Jones and the creative team behind him, it is probably best to look at the broader superhero genre of the time. From Superman to Captain America, 
most early superheroes were visually depicted in a manner only really separated by their divergent costumes rather than variations in gender and race. Perhaps most obviously, they were all white and at the same time all American. The creators of these characters were not necessarily making a statement about the nature of race when they created the whitewashed superhero genre. But taking all of these early heroes together, it becomes crushingly obvious and undeniable that the best qualities associated with America in the comic book world were also directly connected to whiteness. At times, this racial hierarchy could be challenged, particularly by the odd Native American character in some Western comics. But overall, non-whiteness fared ill in the medium. Asian caricatures were common tropes even before the outbreak of World War II and the systematic vilification of the Japanese in the American media. In the first issue of Detective Comics in 1937, future Superman creators Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster introduced the world to Slam Bradley, a strongman proto-superhero who's depicted taking on an entire gang of hyper-stereotyped Asian thugs. Each of the offending gang members wears loose clothing. Their faces are sharp, their eyes tiny, and their heads bald but for a few plumes of hair or a top knot or a ponytail. In contrast, the image of Bradley, strong, handsome, perfectly proportioned, white, is made to look all the more heroic, all the more American as a result. Even today, pundits reflect upon Superman's all-American character, whilst his long-time followers bemoan the changes made to this seemingly timeless hero. And yet Superman was as defined by race as his progenitor, Slam Bradley, and as defined as his successor, Captain America, would later become. In his first appearance, Superman was not depicted taking on a group of stereotyped racial others, but the casual racism of his creators cannot be entirely laid aside. Negative racial stereotypes may be rare in early Superman comics, but the sheer whiteness of these early publications, viewed in the context of Slam Bradley's Asian opponents, speaks to us about the nature of racial assumptions which underpinned mainstream American society. Moreover, these assumptions often bubbled just below the surface of a given comic or superhero, ready to rear their head, should the implied whiteness of the main character require more than a subtle reaffirmation. During the Second World War, Superman is depicted, on the cover of Action Comics number 58, as operating a printing press, out of which rolls a single message for those perusing the shelves of their local newsstand. I quote, Superman says you can slap a Jap with war bonds and stamps. Below this incendiary quotation is an image which the readers of Slam Bradley's first adventure would immediately identify with. A caricatured Asian face stares dazed and confused as a disembodied hand and arm slaps him so hard that he can see stars. The stars are red. The Asian character wears the round glasses later sported by Mickey Rooney's Mr. Yunioshi in 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's, whilst the shirt sleeve and suited arm reminds readers that this is not Superman laying a blow upon the Japanese soldier, 
the caricatured Asian. It was every American citizen. In context then, Whitewash Jones was hardly extraordinary. He was merely another racist creation in a time when such offences were not just accepted, but encouraged throughout much of the mainstream media. Just as audiences would laugh at Rooney's ridiculous character in Breakfast at Tiffany's more than 20 years later, so too did audiences in the 1940s understand that African Americans in mainstream fiction could be devices through which comedy and mockery could be executed. We must, therefore, strive to place Jones's early creative team into an appropriate historic context also. They were individuals raised in a racist world, where racist ideas were hardwired into the DNA of society, where questions regarding the nature of racist expression were rarely asked with force, where challenges to the existing racial order were relatively obscure. This does not excuse these individuals, nor does it remove responsibility from them. Others at that time sought to challenge enduring racial ideas, but it does provide a framework in which understanding, if not sympathy, can be elicited. Whitewash Jones was, and should remain, a smear upon the record of Jack Kirby, and, to a much lesser extent, that of Stan Lee. Both of these men were doing nothing new when they contributed to this character, but neither were they willing or capable of thinking outside of the racial box to which they were ultimately helping to contribute. Whitewash Jones may not have stood out in the period in which he was born, but he certainly stands out on the CVs of both of these men. In 2009, Marvel Comics faced up to this chapter of its problematic past when it released the Young Allies Comics 70th Anniversary Special. In this new adventure, Marvel attempted to reconcile the new Captain America, that mantle having now been passed to former young ally Bucky Barnes, with this problematic history by retroactively redeeming the young allies, and specifically the character of Whitewash Jones. Rather than acknowledge the original young allies' comics as canonical parts of Captain America's past, they were instead recast as the semi-fictionalised retelling of the adventures carried out by the real, but therein warped, young allies. In this new story, readers are introduced to the real young allies for the first time, a group whose exploits were adapted to the comic book medium as a way of creating propaganda for the American war effort. In this 21st century recasting, the original comics were the inaccurate artefacts of real-world activity, the exaggerations and caricatures resulting from contemporary attempts to make these titles appeal to the young boys they were meant to encourage. In the new Young Allies, Whitewash Jones was recast as Washington Carver Jones, a distinguished and capable individual. Whitewash Jones thus became Washington Jones's literary alter ego, an exaggerated, racist and pulpy version of a true-to-life patriot who never really existed. Redemption for the original titles? This comic was not. No amount of fictive acrobatics can erase them from existence nor expunge their sad record. But in a world in which most histories and accounts of Marvel's past have ignored the sad legacy of the Young Allies and of Whitewash Jones, such a gesture is a welcome one. It is also welcome in a world 
in which some of the most enduring heroes of our time, Superman, Captain America, etc., were founded in periods in which their dominant characteristics were infused by the DNA of racism and implied white supremacy. In his own right, Captain America was not a racist creation, but, like Superman, he reflected the dominance of whiteness in mainstream American culture, and in Whitewash Jones, he was given an opportunity to contrast idealised white perfection with the sad satirical image imposed upon African Americans throughout that period. That Captain America, a hero created to promote America's growing role in World War II, should have been defined by crude racial contrasts and implied white superiority is one of the great ironies of the early superhero genre. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.